You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now to John chapter 16. Before we begin, let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself, the one true God in the pages of Scripture. It is in your word that we come to know you, and, and you open our eyes to it, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. And We thank you for that, and we pray that you would do that. Incline our hearts to your word, and incline our hearts to your grace, to see in the pages of Scripture the glory of Christ our Lord, and send your Spirit to reveal and disclose the things of Christ to us, that we may behold our great and gracious triune God, and behold his glory in the face of Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your goodness, and thank you for calling us your own and making us your own. And then we pray that you would send your Spirit to be our comforter and our guide and our teacher this morning as we look at your word. May you be honored here in not only our understanding, but also our application of the truth and and our trust and confidence in Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. John chapter 16, we're going to be reading, begin reading in verse 16, and we'll read through the end of verse 22. John 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father... So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. It is possible for us to endure almost any pain, almost any suffering, almost any grief or sorrow, so long as we have hope that it will come to an end. Hope that it will come to an end. Hope that it will be used for some good. Hope that some... Uh, that we might learn something from it or hope that at least we will get some reward for it. Um, a mother can endure the birth and the entire painful process of giving birth, knowing that the joy of having a baby born is going to replace the grief and the anguish of that. Uh, you can endure the loss of a loved one, a spouse or a child or a friend, so long as in Christ we have the hope that we will see them again. And even if we don't have the hope that we will necessarily see them again, at least we do have the hope that God will bring some good out of it and that the judge of all the earth will do what is right and that he will glorify his name through whatever it is that he does in that whole process. We can endure a medical procedure, a long, painful one that will mean hours or days of recuperation, so long as on the other side of it, we at least have the hope or anticipation that something good will come out of it and things will be better on the other side of it. We can endure six, eight years of a bad administration or presidency so long as we have the hope that on the other side of it we'll be replaced by another bad administration or presidency or at least we convince ourselves that things will get better. And so we endure having hope that things are going to last or things that that's not going to last and that things will get better. We can endure almost any pain or affliction or suffering so long as we have hope. 
As Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 12, or 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And what he meant is that when you lose all hope, your heart gets sick. You just, when you lose hope, you lose hope. And when you lose hope, you just, you get sick, you get ill, your, your heart just faints. And you suffer under the affliction of some bad situation or some bad event, some grief, some pain, without any hope that it will come to, to an end. On the last night that our disciples were with the Lord Jesus, they had lying ahead of them for sure one of the worst evenings that they would ever experience. He has already told them that He is leaving. He has told them that He is going to the Father. He has told them that the world is going to hate them. He has told them that the world is going to persecute them. That people will think that they are serving God by killing them. Those are some very uh, sobering, very serious words and warnings, and they really didn't have much hope in this life. But Jesus, throughout this last evening with the disciples, has been giving them hope after hope and encouragement after encouragement. And we come in our passage to another one. Just when we get to John 16, the end of John 16, the disciples at that point are just hours, and I mean hours at the most from the arrest of Jesus. They had no idea what lie ahead. But when those soldiers came into the garden to arrest their master, what they were to face that evening would be grief upon grief. They would That would be the longest night that any of them had ever lived. Most of them would scatter, and the few that were brave enough to pursue Christ and try and find out where He was going and follow Him, they would hide in the shadows, and even Peter would deny Him. And they would be fearful for their lives. And eventually their master would be crucified, and they would see the one whom they loved hanging on a cross, dying under the curse of God in an inexplicable fashion. They would see all of the mock trials and the the persecution of Christ, and this one who had done nothing ever worthy of anybody's hatred would have uh, scorn and hatred heaped upon him. And he would sit there and he would take it and not give any answer to those who brought the charges against him. And he would endure it like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and then he would be crucified, and they would lay him in a tomb, and the sun would set. That's grief. That is pain. That is anguish. What lie ahead for these men in the next 48 hours was an unspeakable grief. And Jesus knew that. And so he gives to them a promise. He gives to them a promise that their grief, though it is real and though sorrow had filled their heart, verse 6 of chapter 16 says, sorrow had filled their heart, that sorrow would be turned into joy. And that is the promise he gives them in this text in verses 16 to 22. And we're going to be looking at all of those verses all seven of those verses. And don't think that I've lost my mind. We're able to handle seven verses because much of it is is material that is repeated and explained. And the central idea of the passage is in verse 20. And it's the end of verse 20. I want you to notice it. Jesus said, Your grief will be turned into joy. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. That's the central idea of that. The grief that you have now, the grief that you are about to experience, here's the hope. That grief is going to be turned into joy. Now, the rest of this passage explains that. It illustrates it. And you may notice that there's a lot of difficult things here. This, quite frankly, is one of those passages that if I were the type of preacher who just picked a different text every week and I was somewhere else, I would never preach through this. I would pastor 150, 200 years before I would ever choose to preach through this passage. Why? Because it's not God's Word or because I don't like it? No, it's just not one of those. It's a difficult text. There are some difficult things to explain here. And we've seen as we've gone through the Supper Room Discourse, in fact, was a couple weeks ago, I told you, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about here, and neither does any commentator who's ever lived. We can kind of take our best guess at what we think he's describing. It's the same here. Look at beginning of verse 16. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. What? What does that refer to? And that was the disciples' question as well. And so we're going to look at this text 
under this two, these two headings, the question that the disciples ask, and then the answer that Jesus gives to the disciples. Remember the key point, your sorrow will be turned into joy. That's what he is wanting to promise them. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. So let's look first of all at the question that the disciples ask. Beginning in verse 16, Jesus said, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Verse 17, some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing that he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They didn't understand what it was that he was saying in verse 16. And and quite frankly, we're not absolutely certain what he is saying in verse 16 either. We kind of have our best guess, judging from the context. But what, what this little enigmatic statement, this puzzling statement that Jesus gives in verse 16, you're gonna, is gonna be a little while and then you're not gonna see me, and a little while and you will see me. Now if I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm not doing this, so don't raise your hand otherwise you look really goofy. Cause you'd be like the only one in here doing it. Don't raise your hands, but if I were to ask for a show of hands, you would probably say, I think, we think what Jesus is saying there is after a little while he's gonna die and be crucified, and they're not gonna see him. And then after a little while longer, he's going to rise again, and they're going to see him again. That's how we would most naturally understand it. This may seem clear to us, but it was very enigmatic to the disciples. I mean, keep in mind, Jesus has just been describing to them the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then he comes up with this, which seems like a very puzzling statement, a very enigmatic statement. A little while, and you're not going to see me, and then again a little while, and you will see me. Where does that come from? It seems as if Jesus has is giving a radical change of subject. Having just talked about the Holy Spirit, now he's switching over to talking about his death and his resurrection and and them seeing him and not seeing him, what does this have to do with the context? Well, that was their question as well. In fact, verse 17 says they kept asking each other. And that, that phrase, some of his disciples then said to one another, that verb can be taken in a continuous sense, meaning they kept on asking one another. They were saying to one another, what does he mean by this? A little while, I'm going to see him and then not see him and not see him and then see him. And they're questioning amongst themselves, having this conversation. And of course, Jesus knew their hearts. And what is it that really perplexed them? What is it that, that really was the enigmatic part of that? It was that phrase, a little while. What does he mean by a little while? So look at verse 18. So they were saying, what is this that he says, a little while? Now they heard him say, you'll notice verse 17. He says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They were putting together two statements, weren't they? The statement of verse 16 and something Jesus had said earlier on, back in chapter 14, verse 28. I go to the Father. And now they are somehow understanding at least this much, that whatever Jesus means by a little while and you will not see me, it's somehow connected to what he has said about going to the Father. And what they don't understand is the timing of all of these events. What what does he mean by this? A little while and you're going to see me, and a little while and you're not going to see me. These seem like two events. Are they the same event? Really, the disciples are looking at it from the other side of the events. You and I, this might be clear to us. It's really not. As you're going to see in a moment, I'm going to confuse you greatly. It might be clear to us from our side of our, our side of history, but keep in mind the disciples are looking at this from the other vantage point, from the other side of these events. We have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We know how it would all unfold. We would look at it and say, well, he's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. He's going to spend 40 days teaching them things about the kingdom of God. Then he's going to send up to heaven and be seated at the Father's right hand and be glorified and exalted and begin his work as the great high priest who intercedes for his people. Then 10 days later, he would send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come and dwell his church, call his people out of the world to himself, and he would sanctify and secure them and gift them for service and empower them for service. And after a period of time, he's going to return again and take away his church. And then he's going to set up a last Davidic kingdom. And that's how it's all going to unfold. Really clear and simple, isn't it? And we all understand all of that, don't we? But we have the advantage of being on the side of the events that we are. What were the disciples expecting? Are you going to set up the kingdom? We came to Jerusalem for this, right? To set up the kingdom? 
We understand you've been telling us for six, eight, ten months that you would die and fall into the hands of sinners and be crucified, buried, and rise again. But the kingdom, can we get centered on the kingdom here? This is what We walked into Jerusalem with the hail of the crowds and they were singing Hosanna and quoting the Psalms. They recognized that you're the Messiah. Set up the kingdom. And now he's telling them, I'm going to leave. And so here's the question they're asking. If he's going to set up the kingdom, why would he leave? If he's not going to set up the kingdom, why would he come back? You're not going to see me, and then you will see me. And what are the disciples wondering? Are we setting up the kingdom? I mean, today, tomorrow, what is the, the little while? That's what really perplexes them. A little while. What does he mean by a little while? And you'll notice it's repeated twice in verse 16, twice in verse 17, once in verse, uh, yeah, once in verse 18, twice in verse 19. This is the issue with them. A little while. What does he mean by a little while? Is it a big time? Is it a little time? And I would just remind you that this little while, the timing of God's prophetic events is the thing that confuses all students of prophecy concerning things yet future, right? Everything that we are confused about regarding prophecy, everything that the church divides over regarding prophecy, all hinges upon the timing of these events. Is it going to be a little while or a long while? I mean, it's been a long while from our perspective since he was here until he comes again. Is that what he means by the little while? The millennium. Is it going on now? Is this the millennium? Is the millennium yet future? Or is there no Davidic kingdom whatsoever? No millennium. When Christ comes to take His church, is it going to be seven years of tribulation? Three and a half years of tribulation? Or does He come and snatch His church and then come right back instantaneously again? And all of the promises that regarding the, 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 the moon turning to blood and the signs and the wonders and all of that happening, all of those promises, were they fulfilled all by 70 A.D.? And was the destruction of Jerusalem and Antiochus Epiphanes and all those men, were they the Antichrist? Was Titus the Antichrist? Was Nero the Antichrist? Are, is all of that fulfilled? Or are all of those things yet future? All of the confusion that we have regarding prophecy all hinges upon God's prophetic plan and the gaps and the time between and the timing of these events. And so before we jump on the disciples and say, look, you ignorant bunch of rubes, can't you understand what he means by a little while? You and I ought to remember that we sit around and scratch our heads about prophetic events sometimes, right? Don't we? We do this as well. And so what does he mean by a little while? Jesus knew their hearts. Now look at the answer that he gives them. Oh, before I, before I get on to the answer he gives them, let me remind you of something. Sometimes in God's revelation, he intentionally veils things from us. We have to remember this about prophecy. Prophecy was intended to be clear, but also intended to, in some ways, veil things that were coming. We see this in the Old Testament regarding the person of Christ. There is enough revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that when he showed up on the scene, the Jews should have said, he's the one. He fulfills all the prophecies that we have come to expect. There was enough revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ that they were held accountable for being able to identify him when he came, and they were accountable for rejecting him. But there are a lot of things about the person of Christ that on the other side of those events, we would sit around and scratch our heads and say, this is a mystery to us. And it is only in hindsight that we see how all of these things were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. It is the same thing with future prophecy. God has kept some things hidden from us, veiled for his redemptive purposes. And so we see that here. Jesus is giving them an enigmatic statement because I think he is being vague with them for a purpose. So look at the answer that he gives now. That's the question. Look at the answer. Jesus knew that they were wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor and has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish 
because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Now remember, he is explaining and illustrating there the fact that their grief will be turned into joy. So here is what the disciples were asking about. What does he mean by a little while? And that is actually the key to understanding the entire enigmatic statement, the entire puzzle, is what does he mean by a little while? There are three possible explanations for what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to give you all three of them, and I'm going to tell you which one I think is true. And I'm going to mix them up so you can't tell really where I'm at and which one I think is is here. Usually you know how I do this. I give you the two really wacky ones, and I give you the good one. That's the one you remember. This time I'm, I'm going to confuse the order just a little bit. There are three possible explanations for this. Regarding the first one, a little while and you will not see me, there's almost universal agreement as to what he's referring to there. Most people just say it's the crucifixion, that he was going to die. It's sort of a puzzling way of describing his crucifixion and that he would die and they would no longer see him. Really, the question revolves around what is the little while and again you will see me? What event is he referring to when he says you're going to see me again? And that's where the three possibilities come in. Now, some people would say that a little while and you will no longer see me is referring to his ascension back to heaven. Okay, but let's just say we, we kind of all agree it's a crucifixion or his ascension back to heaven. But when is our joy turned to sorrow? What is he just talking about when he says a little while and again you will see me? Three possibilities. First, some suggest that he is describing there his resurrection. His resurrection. You will no longer see me, crucifixion, and a little while later, three days, and then you will see me again. I will rise from the dead. Kind of a puzzling way, a little enigmatic, mysterious way of describing his death. And then his resurrection. A few hours, I'm going to die. A few days, you're going to see me again. And then your joy, your grief will be turned into joy. Because though you are sorrowful at the crucifixion, when you see me raised from the dead, then your sorrow will be turned into joy and you will rejoice and exult in that, the resurrection, and nobody will be able to take that joy from you. The problem with that view that it refers to the resurrection is that the joy that the disciples experienced after the resurrection was relatively short-lived. For about 40 days they were with him, but then he went back to heaven again. So that hardly sounds like the permanent type of joy mentioned in verse 22, where he says your joy will never be taken away from you. That's the problem with that. Now, the people who defend that position, they would say that the joy of the resurrection is something that even we have today, right? The fact that he has gone away into heaven and that we no longer see him face to face, that does not take our joy of the resurrection away from us because we celebrate the resurrection. We understand the resurrection is essential to our salvation and so we rejoice in that. And because he has risen, nobody can take away from us the joy of his resurrection or the joy of our hope in our future resurrection. Okay, That's the first option, that it refers to his resurrection. The second option is that it refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now this takes a little bit more thought to kind of see where this is going and why people believe this. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit now defines the relationship that exists between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. So since the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, and He's called the Spirit of Christ, not because the Holy Spirit and Jesus are the same person. They're two separate persons. They are the same God, one nature, one essence. And because that is the case, the Spirit of God is the one who reveals or discloses Christ to us. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into us, then we experience that joy. Our grief of His leaving is turned to joy when the Spirit of God comes, the Spirit who gives us that joy in the inner person. And because the Spirit of God is in us, and He is always with us, and He is with us forever, nobody can ever take that joy from us. So some people would say, again, you will see me again refers to the giving or the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, that kind of fits the context, does it not? Because he has just been describing the Holy Spirit last week. The third option, 
The third option is that when he says, again, you will see me, I say to you, you will see me again, that he is referring to the second coming. And he is saying, when I come back and every eye sees me, and I set up this kingdom of David here on this earth, then your sorrow will be turned into joy. The problem with that is it means that the disciples never actually experienced that joy, did they? Because they're, we're still waiting for that kingdom to be set up. In fact, we don't have that joy that he's describing in this passage, so it hardly seems like a hope that this would refer to the second coming. So those are your three options. The resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the second coming. Now, I'm not asking you to pick a number or flip a coin. I'm going to give to you what I think it is. Um, one of the things that you do in Bible study is after you do your observations from the text, you kind of figure out what you think the text means, you check commentaries. Now, I have three of them that are, that are my favorite go-to commentaries. One of them is by J.C. Ryle. He's an old English divine, wrote at the late end of the 1800s. Really solid, really thorough, good stuff. You've heard me quote from him. The second one is Leon Morris, a real conservative, exegetical commentary. deals with a lot of the original language, syntax, Greek, and all that stuff. Really good observations, an excellent handling of the text. And then more recently, John MacArthur's commentary. John MacArthur's very pastoral, always very solid and biblical. Those are my three favorite commentaries. So I turned to those three commentaries, and guess what? You guessed it. Three different perspectives, three different takes on it. J.C. Ryle thinks this refers to the second coming. Leon Morris thinks this refers to the resurrection. And John MacArthur thinks this refers to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's my take. I think that what Jesus is describing is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, I agree with that, not because I like John MacArthur better than the other two. I have no problem disagreeing with John MacArthur when we need to disagree with John MacArthur. But at this point, I don't think there's any reason to reinvent the wheel. I think that John MacArthur is actually spot on here. I think this refers to the giving of the Holy Spirit, and I'll tell you why. This is the whole flow of the context. Remember, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to send you the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And if you just read down through verse 13, 14, and 15, and into verse 16... There's no reason to think that he is breaking a subject matter between verse 15 and verse 16. He says in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it, reveal it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now, that kind of fits, doesn't it? Fits the whole flow of the context. What has he been telling them? Follow the pattern for the whole upper room discourse. I'm going to the Father and I'm going to send you the helper. Then he said to them, I'm going to the Father and I'm going to send you the helper. And then he said, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to send you the helper. And then he said to them the fourth time, I'm going to the Father and I'm going to send you the helper. And then he says in verse 16, a little while and you're not going to see me. I go to the Father. And then again a little while and you will see me. What does that refer to? I think it's the giving of the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit's job? We saw it last week. It is to reveal the glory of Christ to us, right? He opens our eyes and inclines our hearts. And he is he is the essence of revealing Christ to us so that we look upon him. So when Jesus says, you're not going to see me, this is crucifixion. It's his ascension. It's him leaving but he's going to send the helper, which is what the whole context is about. And that helper will reveal to us the person of Christ. So that makes sense. So now that we think that we've figured out what that means, now let's ask ourselves, does that then fit with what Jesus says in verses 20 through 22? So let's quickly work our way through verses 20 and 22 and see if it fits with everything he has described. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Okay, so if our take on this is, is right, here's what Jesus is saying. There's coming a time when you're, you are going to grieve. They would grieve over the crucifixion, obviously. They would, re, they would receive a, a brief 
sort of a, a joy at the resurrection, a joy which lasts with us today. But then when he left them, their hearts would be filled with sorrow again, the fact that he now left them and went to heaven at the ascension. That grief will be turned into joy when they give, when the Father sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes, and suddenly their hearts are alive now with the Spirit of God dwelling in them, and then they would realize it is to our advantage that he goes away. And it is to our advantage that he goes away because he has sent us the helper, the Holy Spirit, and now the Spirit of God dwells within us. The Spirit has turned our grief into joy because now we recognize that the departing of Christ is actually for our advantage because the Spirit has come, and to have the Spirit in us is better than having Christ with us. Verse 21, Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Now Jesus is giving an illustration. The grief or the pain, the anguish of childbirth is a temporal one. It's, it's temporary. It doesn't last very long. And as soon as the child is born and the mother holds that newborn infant, are they thinking about the pain? Have you ever seen a mother look down into the face of that newborn infant and just start chewing out that baby because of all the pain and the anguish? No, she just forgets about that. It's not that she doesn't remember the pain. Oh, she does. She remembers the pain. But that pain just becomes nothing in the light of the glory of having the newborn child. And this one event, the the anguish of birth, creates two experiences in a mother, does it not? The anguish and sorrow of giving birth, and the joy and delight of the newborn baby. And that is what Jesus is describing when he talks about the giving of the Spirit. This one event, the ascension of the Lord and the coming of the Spirit, they are one in the mind of God. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. In the redemptive plan of God, those things are inseparable. They're separated by ten days, chronologically as we understand them, but they are one event. That's why Jesus said, the Spirit cannot come unless I go. I go so that the Spirit may come. Because in the mind and the plan of God, those two things are inseparable. To have one happen is to have the other happen. So the ascension of the Lord and the arrival of the Spirit, those two things are one event. He ascended so that he might send forth the Holy Spirit. So think of that as one event. That one event, his ascension, creates grief and anguish and sorrow in the hearts of the disciples. But when the Spirit of God comes, what do they have? The delight. Now, J.C. Ryle and those who believe that this refers to the second coming of Christ, they would say that the, the analogy of a mother in childbirth always referred to eschatological things, end-time events. Remember Romans 8? The whole creation groans under the, under the pains of childbirth until now, but we're looking forward to the redemption of our body and the redemption of creation and the coming back of the king so that that, that groaning of pain of childbirth may give birth to a new creation. That's the analogy. Matthew 24, Jesus said all the events that would precede his coming are like uh, birthing pangs. Likens them to birthing pangs. But Jesus is not using that analogy in an eschatological sense. He's using the analogy to describe the emotions that the disciples were about to feel. He's not talking about future events. The emotions that the disciples were about to feel. Tremendous grief by the fact that I am leaving. But that grief will be turned into joy. Verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. What is it that brings us... and an irreplaceable and eternal and lasting joy. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in the hearts of people, in His people, creates a joy that cannot be taken away from us because that joy is not something that is created by circumstances. It is not something created by uh, by our feelings or our emotions. That joy is something that is given to us in the person of the Spirit. And when we rejoice in the gift that God has given to us and we delight in Him, that spirit creates joy in us that is lasting and eternal, and it can never be taken away from us. The joy of the resurrection 
There are times when I might not think about that. There are times when that might not be real to me. There, for the disciples, that joy was, was short-lived for 40 days before he went back to them. And then they would be wondering, what, what became of this? What became of our master? But when the Spirit of God came, that was a joy and a boldness that can never, ever, ever be taken away from us. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives and dwells within us, within us individually and within us corporately as a body. And so we have the joy of the Holy Spirit. A little while and you will not see me. What does that refer to? Either the crucifixion or his ascension. I don't care where you land on that. But a little while and you will see me again. When the Spirit of God comes, he will just take of mine and will disclose it to you. You will see me again when the Spirit of God comes. And he will give you a joy that is everlasting and eternal. And the grief of my departure will be turned into a joy with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. That is, I think, what Jesus is driving at. Let me make one practical kind of observation from this, something we can sort of apply or take away from this text. Like I said, it's a difficult text, but here's what I would give as a practical application of it. It is true that oftentimes in our lives, the most difficult things that we have ever experienced that cause us great grief and anguish are also the things that by the grace of God, he turns into sources of tremendous joy for us. The woman in labor giving birth to a child is an example of that. Cannot the people of God testify that the fact, the things that we have gone through which have been most difficult for us have also been things that have produced for us a great amount of joy? Do we not understand that God does that? If that is true in the temporal sense, that the things in this life that cause us anguish can also provide for us in this life joy, do you not also think that it is true that God can, in his sovereign providence, cause the things in this life that cause us grief to also cause for us an eternal joy? making the grief of this life worth anything that he makes us to endure? The, the, sorry, the joy of eternity worth anything that he makes us to endure in this life? Do you think that's possible? When we look at the providence of God and we say, how can this possibly be used for good? Because I cannot see how anything this evil, this wicked, can possibly have a good outcome. When we say that, it's only because we do not understand the eternal perspective. If we understood the eternal perspective and what God is going to do with that, in and for his glory and in and for his people, If we understood that, we would never question the goodness of God in allowing things that are horrible. God does not waste any affliction. God does not waste any suffering. God does not waste any grief. And there is no grief and there is no anguish and there is no sorrow that a child of God has ever experienced that will not, as we pass through the veil of death, instantly be turned into an eternal joy. Any grief that you think that you have endured or any sorrow you've endured in this life that you think has been unrequited, unrewarded, friends, it's only because you have not seen eternity yet. All of our griefs will be turned into joy. That is his promise. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, not only in salvation and in sanctifying us and securing us for your eternal glory. You have given to us the Spirit, which is a, is a, is a gift beyond measure. And we thank you that he causes us to delight in your word and in the truth, that he is the Spirit of truth that he never lies and never says anything false. He never misrepresents Christ. And so we thank you that we can know and behold the face of Christ by the power of the Spirit in your word. Thank you for revealing to us the truth in Christ. And thank you for giving us the spirit of truth. What a joy that is for us. And we delight in him. We thank you for him. And we pray that you would give us confidence that every sorrow and every anxiety and every, every pain and affliction that we endure in this life will be turned to our eternal joy. We know that the Spirit gives us a glimpse of what that means and, and how that is possible. And so we thank you that we can look to the life that is to come for the complete resolution of all the griefs and sorrows that you have appointed for your people in this life. Be praised and be glorified through our reflection upon these things that you might 
be honored in and through the hearts of your people. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.